Welcome to Teaching Channel Talks. One of my favorite things to do is to speak with expert educators about challenging issues in education. And today you will not be disappointed. I'm your host, Wendy Amato. And this week I welcome back Dr. Michael Moody, co-founder of Insight Education. Now, for those of you who follow this podcast, you have already learned a bit about Dr. Moody, his professional trajectory, his education experience, and his commitment to supporting educators. Like that's a lot. But today I'm challenging Dr. Moody to get into some controversy with me and it's gonna be good. We're gonna explore a range of paradoxes, people, programs, and what we promote in education. We're gonna hear some of his thoughts on some challenging issues. Let me start off, uh, welcome Dr. Moody. Thank you, good to be back. I'm, I've, I've lined up some doozies for you right here. I'm looking forward to it, I can't wait, let's do it. Let's see what you've got. I want to talk to you a little bit about this paradox where we have people all over education who have system level responsibilities, but they really don't think in systemic ways. How, how are we surviving? What is happening to education when we have this contradictory coexisting thing? I mean, I think we're just doing that. We're surviving in many cases, right? Especially recently, just kind of trudged through. And so I think that you know, the challenge is always figuring out how do we, how do you prepare for that type of role? I think the irony in education too is when you move up the system, your do- job's completely changed, but there's no training for it. You know, we're trained to become teachers, but there's not a lot of training to become a school leader or a district administrator. You kind of just find yourself in the role and have to figure out how to make it work. And so the system's thinking, I think is, it's just, it's lacking. And, you know, it's, and we see it so much. I think the other challenge in districts too is they're just siloed organizations and they're so spread out and the work is so different by school or by department. And so thinking about how all these systems work together, I think is really paramount to the work and something we don't spend enough time doing because we're fighting fires a lot too, especially as a superintendent. There's so much on your plate. You know, you can't always kind of man the ship in ways that I think would make it most effective. What, what do you recommend for people who are aspiring leaders as they think about embracing the challenges and, and genuinely wanting to make a positive difference? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, it's getting clear, you know, before you step into the role, getting clear on what you hope to achieve in that role and then figuring out what is it going to take to get there. I think building a team, you know, no matter what industry you work in and building a team is really critical and paramount. And so how do you build a team that can function collectively, but also independently at the same time. And that's what school districts to me, if when they're, when the work is done well, that's what we do well is we really collaborate well as a team, but we also know we have kind of individual bodies of work that work their way up to this collective goal, but you got to be really proficient at both connecting the dots with your colleagues, but also managing a team to kind of deliver on the the promise of really delivering good instruction for kids. And that comes with kind of these inherent challenges. You just got to tackle head on. Without saying it explicitly, I hear you reminding leaders that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's part of uh, breaking apart this paradox is the thought that there's like a single individual at the top <laughs> trying to do everything for everyone, but well, we are alone. They're not, but if I, I mean, it's, when you think about superintendents, it can be a very alone feeling place, right? I mean, there's no one in your district who has your job. And at the end of the day, you're the one, the buck stops there, you know, and, and for superintendents too, you know, their work is so much broader than just what's going on in schools. There's kind of politics and people and, you know, a pandemic and all these kind of things that impact the superintendent's work. And so I think that second, third, fourth tier of leaders in an organization, kind of especially into buildings too, they need to be well connected to the work as well. I think the churn in leadership also doesn't help 
this because you know systems take a little bit of time. I think back even to our time in DC, it was a few years, you know, before it felt like there were any systems in place. But you know, now a decade later, they're still in place. But it was because there was a lot of system building on the front end, and that took a lot of consistency and it took a lot of just you know consistency in the people, especially like same people, same seats, um, really staying the course and doing the work so that it would last and kind of be deeply embedded versus kind of more transactional. How do you advise leaders who have this strained position of uh, system responsibilities, but maybe still developing systemic thinking? How do you advise them to, to get started? What first steps do you generally prioritize? Yeah, I mean, I think having an outside set of eyes always helps in these types of conversations or kind of people you trust, right, in that space. And so I think first and foremost, it's establishing who, who you're going to surround yourself with. You know, both people, I, I, and I don't say that to mean like bring people with you, but I think that's important. You can do that too. But anytime we settle into, see, especially in education, there's people around you already doing the work, right? And so it's not just kind of who are you going to bring with you, but how do you engage those already sitting in those seats to be on the team, right? And support the work moving forward. And I think the more collaborative you can be on the front end in terms of bringing people into a, some sort of design and planning process, the kind of more success you'll have downstream. I think oftentimes we jump into these seats, either as a school leader or a district leader, and there's so much work to do that we just start to work, right? <laughs> because there's a lot of work to do and, and the urgency is there for us. We you know, we know these kids in our schools need as much support as they can get and the teachers supporting our students need that as well. And so we jump right to the work and I don't think we always spend enough time on the front end planning for the work and kind of being thoughtful about the strategy that's associated with it, but also the outcomes and how we're gonna measure ourselves too. I always use backward design. You know, I did it as a teacher and I do it as a district leader as well. And what are our objectives? How are we gonna assess where we got there? And then what's the work? And so if we can be clear about the objectives and how we're gonna hold ourselves accountable, we get better at the work because we're just more thoughtful and planful on the front end. A lot of people gave themselves permission recently to just put out the fires of the day. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of the strategic thinking and certainly the, the long range planning was put on the back burner. That's true. Do, do you, is there a sense that that actually moves us backwards or have we just been on pause? I mean, if you look at the data, it feels like we move backwards. You know, as I look at student achievement data and districts we support too, and we've seen, um, you know, achievement right now looks worse than it did pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, I think at best we were hoping for kind of status quo, and I don't, I'm worried that that's not the case. And that's not everyone, everywhere, and right. And but I think by and large, there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen. You know, I think the good news is it did disrupt some of the way we kind of traditionally did business, right, or kind of did our work. And so I think teachers are walking into classrooms these days with a different eye on instruction because they were virtual for so long. They had to engage students differently, use technology, and so you know we're seeing. We're definitely seeing teachers engage with each other differently. Technology, you know, Zoom, Zoom wasn't a big thing before pandemic. Now it's all the rage or, you know, people hate it, but they still love it. Right? <laughs> like but we, we've learned how to work within that space. And so we, we're doing a lot more of that. And I think we'll see more innovation, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of moving forward. But I do think kind of getting back to the first question, it's going to take us to kind of step back and then get out of kind of crisis mode and get into kind of more forward thinking planning mode to figure out what does that mean, you know, moving forward and how do we not, I think we're in trouble if we just try to go back to business as usual. Um, 
And I don't see that happening, but I think it's most comfortable. So I think we want to be there because everyone's just tired and they, and they want to kind of not feel the way they feel. But I also think that's a little bit dangerous to kind of fully expect that we're just going to return to that space. And so, you know, kind of back to, we got to kind of support each other in this process and figure out what's going to take to get to a place where we really want to be. People have made some phenomenal pivots in their behavior, in their practices, in their use of technology, and, and maybe they've surprised themselves in education at, at how quickly they can make changes happen. I'm optimistic that there will be some, some strategic thinking at the higher level that will help us to move faster in the right direction for mm -hmm. education. Totally agree, yeah. Thanks for reminding us that the, the hardest hit have been the students, that the outcomes uh, really boil down to, to the student learning. And if we, if we talk about systems and we talk about leadership, there's, there's a, um, an attractiveness in denying the humans involved. We, we start to talk about things almost in abstraction. How do, you, yeah. how do you keep students at the front of your actions and your recommendations? I think... I mean, first and foremost, we just say it a lot and we remind ourselves of the fact that, you know, our students are our clients. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's who we're all here to serve. And so if we're not doing a good job there, you know, we're just not doing our job, period. And so we kind of need to remind ourselves of why we do the work we do. Um, and then I think it's, you know, I think it's also making sure we're mindful of kind of where people are in that space, you know. Students are who we're serving, but educators need a lot of support right now, too, because they're coming out of a really tumultuous few years and it's been challenging. And so how do we, you know, kind of reignite and re-energize folks around, you know, what's most important? I've also found that just as educators, we're motivated by the success of our students. You know, do they feel engaged? Do they like coming to school? What does our interaction look like? And so I think if we can, if we can kind of put ourselves back in that seat it's pretty easy to get people going again. Like, you know, so we start oftentimes our conversations with why are you here? Like, why do you do this work? If we remind ourselves of the why of our work, I just think it helps us kind of give each other a little grace in the meantime, but also re-engage in ways that we felt disconnected from for a little bit of time and kind of pulling all that into where we're at now. I've got a new paradox I want to explore with you. I'd like to talk about the contradiction of promoting collaboration within structures that really breed siloed thinking. And, and maybe it's an extension of our conversation about coherence, but, but I'd like to focus on the collaboration piece where we set up our structures in ways that actually don't reward working together. Yeah, that's very true. Or we don't set the structures up at all and we just expect it to happen, right? So, mm. which is also another challenge. Yeah, I mean, we've seen movement here. I think, you know, we see schools that have dedicated time for collaboration, PLCs, that kind of stuff. But, you know, then we're not always great at kind of what are the structures? What are the expected outcomes? Like take it back to where we started, you know, kind of what we've been talking a little bit about. Just providing time to collaborate doesn't mean people are going to do that and do it well. Um, I think it's, and it's not something we've done kind of naturally, right? We've mostly spent our time in our classrooms by ourselves with our students. <laughs> You know, so when we have an opportunity to collaborate, it becomes glorified planning or kind of, you know, help you help me, I'll help you kind of thing. I think you know, if we can implement more appropriate collaborative structures, kind of really clear structures and help folks understand how to leverage those structures, we just find more movement. You know, and we see that around things like examining student work protocols or consultancy protocols. And, you know, as we do this work in schools, 
I, I can see teachers sometimes feel like, oh, it's so structured or, you know, like it feels a little like class, you know, because we're holding them accountable to something. And But at the end of the day, kind of when they work on that muscle, it becomes, you know, they, they start to use it more instinctively. And I just, I just see that's when you see the work really take off. And so I think part of it is just being persistent in the work and knowing that it's not going to feel as productive as you might want it to, but the better we get at it, the more productive it starts to feel. And then the structures start to fall away, but we've, we've tra trained our brains how to work within those structures. And then it helps us kind of do the work and focus on the work. And so I, I, again, I just think it comes down to kind of making sure you have that system brain, that systems thinking, but also figuring out like where, how does that meet the practitioners we're working with and how do we help them lean into that in ways that work? I think the other idea too is like, and technology is helping us do that, but we sometimes have limited paradigms of what collaboration looks like because we're limited by the structures of a school, right? Like we can collaborate within a schedule that somebody set for me within a building that I was assigned to, you know, with a grade level team. And if we're relying on others to give us that space, time, structure, a school leader or a district say, yes, you can now have the space and here's the time you can have to do it. And here's the people you can do it with. And, you know, part of what we've been playing with over the last few years too is figuring out, can we, can we break down that school? Like, could we have people collaborate who don't even work in the same school or district or state? You know, imagine a rural physics teacher that I always use this example, but I want to, we're working with districts in South Carolina and there's, you know, in the rural districts, there's a physics teacher, right? And so they collaborate with science teachers, but teaching physics, not the same as teaching bio or yeah. some, something else. Physics teachers want to collaborate with another physics teacher. So can we use technology like video and stuff to connect them with a physics teacher in another district, maybe even another rural district in the state? Um, so they could actually collaborate, but they could video and watch each other teach and give each other feedback on their teaching. Like to me, collaboration doesn't have to be so traditional. And I think we want it to be traditional because that's how we work in schools, right? Like we set a structure, we set the schedule the right way, and then we need to work within that structure. And so I think it's breaking that down a little bit and kind of trying to figure out what are we missing? And are there ways to do things that we're not seeing? And we only learn from, the irony too is like, we learn from watching each other and collaborating with the other people, but when the structures aren't set up right, we don't have that time, so we don't do it, right? So I, I, as much as I wanted to, as a young teacher, see other teachers teach, I didn't have the time or the space to do it. So I just never did it. And then I talked to them, but I never saw them do the, the actual teaching. I never saw them use the strategies that they were suggesting I could use too. And so I think if we can get better at, the connection part of it and leveraging what we you know we're living in an age where technology is all the rage and and it's so useful so let's leverage it in good ways so that we're getting further in this conversation and we're not kind of hamstrung by structures that just don't work or don't work as effectively as they could we've both been at conferences where people are grouped according to content areas or grade bands and then and then you get the land of misfit toys versus mm -hmm. like um, the one music teacher, the one visual arts teacher, the one PE teacher, uh, and, and they are supposed to support one another. Of yeah. course, interdisciplinary collaboration has its space, but if the intention is to help people see models of things that they may be able to use in their own classroom, we sometimes are not doing our best. Agreed. And we're, we asked those educators specifically to figure it out, right? Like come to a, come to a professional development on X, more generic, right? And it's going to be most relevant to 
classroom teachers who are teaching maybe some of the more traditional content areas. And so you music teachers sit in on this instructional design training and figure out how it relates to you and music versus bringing music teachers together and maybe customizing to their needs. And so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I just think, I, I always find it so ironic that we work in education, but we're not always great at supporting the education of the adults in the system. You know, we focus so much on the education of our students, which is priority number one for sure. But there's a lot of lessons in that work that would relate to the adults in the space as well. And I don't think we learn those lessons so well as those supporting the adults in the system students. I think we could we could do a better job for sure. I feel like the support that you provide for adults is is support for students because you know that that support comes through the teacher. So I, I don't find it at all contradictory to mm, talk about providing about for it. educators. We we have to we have to provide for them. We know that's what makes the difference in the student learning outcomes. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. What other non-examples are there of collaboration? I don't want you to pick on any schools or districts that you work with, but I'm thinking of um, getting together and trading lesson plans. Here, I've got a unit. Here, I've got a five-day unit. Let me let me trade yours so I don't have to plan on that following yep. week. To me, that's that's low level. That was my first year teaching. Whatever the teacher <laughs> next door taught, I taught the week later, right? On Friday, I got all her stuff and her black line masters. I learned it over the weekend. I taught the next week, right? That was collaboration in my head because she was really helping me a lot as a first year teacher. Um, but there are way better ways to do it that probably would have made me kind of would have would have forced me to focus on my skill set rather than just what I was going to do next week. It was more transactional and less kind of about growth. And so I think that's a good one. I do think kind of PLCs with no structure is another one. You know, I've already kind of talked about that, but how do we, you know, just providing the time and the space doesn't mean the work or the right work is going to get done. Um, and we see that in all different kind of flavors, right? We see that just with collaboration. We see a lot of data and kind of examining student data, you know, and there's some research coming out that's suggesting that maybe data isn't kind of the end all be all in terms of moving teacher practice relative to student performance. We need to understand where students are, how students are doing, but just looking at data doesn't make me a better teacher, right? It's kind of, what do I do with the data is going to make me a better teacher. And so I think it, we're a little short-sighted. We're hearing things like teachers need to know the data of their students. And so we're getting better at providing data, but, but then the next step is like, okay, what do you do with the data? How do you make sure, you know, and what do you do as a follow-up? How is this impacting your practice? So I think making sure we're thinking long, short and long-term at the same time becomes really important. You just brought the, the final paradox of how do we swim in data, but stay thirsty for information? Yeah. And we just keep going until we get there, I think. Like we, I think we we get the, the other thing I found it helpful for myself and you know for some of my colleagues too is there's so much data. We got to get clear on what data we want and need and what data is going to be the most helpful. So if we're using data sets or kind of different pieces of data and we're finding them not helpful or or helpful, like let's focus on what's most helpful and kind of pivot. To that, we don't need to look at data just for the sake of looking at data. We need to kind of figure out what is data telling us or teaching us. Um, and some data is more useful than others for a bunch of different stuff. And so understanding what you need and when you need it relative to student data, I think is really important. And teacher data too. There's a lot of data on practice that I think we forget about, right? And, you know, 
I, I know people don't like to talk about it, but even evaluate teacher evaluation systems, they're rich with data, you know, and there's questions about how valid the data is and all that kind of stuff, but we can do things to help with the validity of that data too. And so that could really help us think about how we support teachers more effectively too, if we really had good data on teacher practice and, you know, highlights and lowlights and all everything in between. I think there's so much value in it, but we gotta be good users of it and good stewards of the data, but also kind of good stewards of the practice relative to the data. Dr. Moody, this conversation explored some coexisting contradictions in education. You were brave in exploring those with your perspective and your experience. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Always my pleasure, of course. To my fellow educators, thank you for joining us. You can find links to resources that Dr. Moody and I discussed down in the show notes below or at teachingchannel.com slash podcast. If you leave a rating and review on whatever podcast listening app you use, it will help more educators to find us. I'll see you again soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.